Throughout our education, we're often so focused on being able to answer questions, we forget to pay attention to how skilled we are at asking them. But our ability to get good information from someone is directly connected to our ability to ask good questions. Our question this episode: What can we do to make our questions more productive and effective? Welcome to episode thirty-two of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. I'm your host Beth Bilo. Thank you so much for joining me. In this episode, I continue an exploration that I started in episode thirty-one of the art and science of asking good questions. It's something that we do every day. At least I hope we're asking questions every day, but we often don't think about how effective our questions are in moving us toward our goals. Whether that's finding out our partner's thoughts about taking a summer vacation, to persuading a colleague to support our idea at work. I'll start with a quick recap of the first five tips I offered from episode thirty-one, and then go into more detail with the final five that I want to share with you. Let's review the first five. One, a question should be an invitation, not an interrogation. By asking a question, you are opening the door for someone to share information with you. Keep the tone inviting and friendly by leaving space between your questions, offering your own perspective as appropriate, and seeing each response you receive as a gift, not just a data point that leads to another question. Two, be sincere. You don't have to care deeply or profoundly, but at least care enough to hear what they have to say. Don't ask for someone's opinion unless you intend to take it into consideration. Three. Start with what, not why. What's so wrong with why? Well, depending on the tone, why can seem judgmental and accusatory. It can put someone on the defensive. It's often better, and you're going to get better responses if you start most of your questions whenever possible with what or how. Number four, the best questions are open-ended. Few things grind a conversation to a halt. Then close-ended yes or no questions. Yes or no questions lead us to either-or answers, whereas open-ended questions lead us to both-and answers. There's just more possibility in them. Number five, don't disguise advice as a question. This can be a tricky one because we often have very good intentions and we think we're being curious. For example, if I ask you, "Have you thought about giving up smoking to help your asthma?" we might be sincerely wondering. But what we're actually saying is, "You should give up smoking if you want to get a better handle on your asthma." We're really stating our opinion or offering advice. If that's what you want to do, then do it. Don't hide your advice in a question, thinking it will seem less bossy or direct. So that's our recap of those first five tips. Here are the remaining tips six through ten that will make your questions more productive and effective. Number six: Watch out for compound questions. Of all of these, this tip could really add clarity and power to your questions. The term "compound questions" is most often used to describe a technique lawyers use if they want to create confusion or ambiguity. They also call these types of questions "double-barreled." An example would be. 
How often and for how long did you visit with the defendant? Or when you saw him leave the store, did he have a mask and a backpack on? In the first case, there are two separate questions: how often and for how long. This isn't horrible. You can possibly share those two questions at the same time, but it can lead to confusion because our brain works best with only one question at a time. In the second example, it's asking for a yes or no answer to a single question that could have multiple answers. Yes, he had a mask and a backpack. No, he had neither. He had a mask, but no backpack. He had a backpack, but no mask. You can see the problem with the question. By grouping them together, the lawyer is suggesting that they were both present, and it's either a yes or a no answer. In that case, the witness could start second guessing themselves and doubt their recall, which, of course, may be exactly what the lawyer wants. I'm offering this as a question don't, because I'm assuming you do not want to confuse the person that you're talking to. Let's see what a non-lawyer compound question sounds like. A simple everyday example might be: Did you do your homework and brush your teeth? Those are two separate questions that may or may not share an answer. If you want to ask one question that gets at both points, it might sound like: How are you doing on your to-do list before bedtime? You can tell I don't have kids since I refer to it as a to-do list, but you can substitute your own、um, verbiage for that. In response to that, they still might say "I'm fine" or some other monosyllabic answer, but then you have an opening to ask, "Have you done your homework?" and then wait for a reply, and then ask, "Did you brush your teeth?" Granted, that's a very trivial example, but you you probably get my point. Where we often make it more complicated is when we stack questions. In a coaching situation, stacking means that it's not only a compound question that asks two different things at the same time, but both questions are open-ended, which compounds the problem. For instance, if I ask, "What do you want to do, and what will it take to make it happen?" I'm asking my client two very complex questions at once. Those two different questions are going to call on two different parts of their brain: the imaginative side and the tactical side. Their thoughts will jump between the two questions. They're more likely to say, "I don't know," and then, "Which part of the question are they saying I don't know to?" This is the simplest to fix. Practice asking one question at a time, leaving space in between each one for someone to respond. It might seem more efficient to ask two questions at once, but remember we're going for effective and productive, not necessarily efficient. And it's more likely to feel like an interrogation and cause confusion, which will waste more time and feel more uncomfortable than asking the questions one at a time. Number seven. Don't ask a question combined with possible responses. It's like the verbal equivalent to a multiple choice question, and it sounds like this: What do you think is contributing to the problem? Is it that people are late, or they don't care, or they need more information? There might be a circumstance where, as the person asking the question, you feel you need to offer ideas or clues because the other person is nervous or unprepared, and you want to help them out. It's good to support someone if they need it. 
but I constantly hear it when it's clear that it's not necessary. I hear it every single day from journalists, podcasters, and radio hosts who are frequently interviewing experts who are neither nervous nor unprepared. I hear it in everyday conversations at committee meetings, during question and answer periods at presentations and lectures, and even hanging out with friends. And I know I've been guilty of it myself. I really have to pay attention and watch it. My theory is that there are three possible reasons we do this, depending on the context. One is that we want to show that we really don't need to ask the question because we already know the possible answers and we want to be sure that everyone else knows that we know. Basically, it's to keep us from looking weak for asking a question. A second possibility is that we aren't sure we asked a good question, so we give sample answers as a way to clarify. And finally, a third possibility is that we think we're doing a favor for the person answering the question. We're taking some of the pressure off by giving them options. A better way to approach it is to ask your question, wait, and let the other person ask if they want some options. Usually someone will say, can you give me some examples if they want the multiple choice approach? And if what's going on is that you fear you'll look bad for asking a question, I invite you to let that go. We need more curiosity in the world, not less. Go ahead and ask. And if someone else thinks that you're weak for asking a question, that's about them, not about you. Number eight, notice if your question is leading or in search of a particular answer. If you've watched as many episodes of Law and & Order and other criminal procedurals as I have, you know the mantra of the lawyers. Don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. Unless you're a lawyer in a courtroom, you want to do the opposite of that. A good question in conversation or conflict is one that you don't have the answer to. It's true that you might be able to guess at the answer, or you might assume that you know, if that's the case, you can decide if you want to check out your belief or assumption with a statement that seeks clarification, which is different than the open-ended, I have no idea question approach that I'm suggesting. Let's go into an example. Let's say you are wondering if a project is going to go over budget, and you believe it's best to cut expenses by switching suppliers. But you can't make the decision alone. You have to check with your project partner to see if they think the same thing. You're fairly confident that they do, but you're not sure. A leading question would sound like, do you think switching suppliers is going to solve this problem? Why is that leading? You're making a lot of assumptions by framing this as a yes-no situation and pointing them towards the answer that you hope to hear. A clarification statement question combination would sound like, I think you're going to say that we should find a cheaper supplier for the parts since we've solved this problem in a similar way before. But I don't want to assume that's your solution. What would you suggest? Now, phrasing it that way is slightly leading in that you're planting a seed when you offer the solution, but if you're really honestly open to their suggestions and you're open to those suggestions being different than what you had assumed, it's more honest than that first question. A truly open, I have no idea question would be, it looks like we're going to go over budget. What do you think our options are? 
That's the opening of an exploration of possibility, and it gives you both a chance to weigh in and discuss different solutions. I'm going to offer a variation on this one that I've noticed coming up for me lately, and this is much more in the personal realm. I had a friend who was going through an emotional rough patch, and I thought about texting her one day, asking, are you feeling better? On the surface, there's nothing wrong with that. It shows I care and that I hope that she's feeling better. But it's also sending a subtle message that I expect her to be better and that she should be better by now, for goodness sakes. It's leading in that it's nudging her towards a particular answer, that of being better. If she doesn't feel better, she either tells a white lie and says that she's fine Or she might make up an internal story about how she should be feeling better, but she doesn't, and then she feels worse. Now, that is with a person that might be a little bit more sensitive or might be hesitant to be vulnerable and share how they're really feeling. And so that's why I say that they might just tell a little white lie or something. The solution in this case is to ask a more neutral question. How are you feeling? That gives her space to say, I'm doing great, or I still feel terrible, without any pressure from me to respond in a particular way. Now, it's probably okay to say, are you feeling better if someone is physically sick? But even then, I'd challenge you to ask the more neutral, how are you feeling? It's very subtle, but it's a more empathetic question and is likely to lead to a more honest answer. We're almost in the home stretch. Number nine, be aware of biased questions. This is related to what I was just sharing about leading questions, with the difference that biased questions have even more of an agenda behind them. I'll preface by saying that asking completely unbiased questions all the time would be almost impossible to do, since we're always coming from our personal perspective, which inherently has certain biases, whether we are aware of them or not. The invitation is to really try to heighten our awareness of those biases, and then do our best to acknowledge them and try to craft questions that either avoid those biases or are open and honest about them. I want to share a very simple example of biased questions that I heard recently when I was listening to the NPR show Fresh Air, hosted by Terry Gross. Now, Terry is often cited as an expert interviewer, able to ask questions in a way that brings out unusual stories from her subjects. And I've long admired her style that shows that she's done her homework, yet leaves lots of room for the other person to share their experience and expertise. In this particular episode that I was listening to, she was interviewing an author about climate change. Now, that is already a loaded topic. It's one that many of us would have difficulty being neutral about, no matter what we believed about it. I found her questions, though, to be incredibly biased, and I would suggest unnecessarily so. And I'm sharing this because it gives a classic example of what biased questions sound like. She was already speaking with someone who believed that climate change was a massive problem, that current policies weren't moving in the right direction, and that essentially we are on a not-so-slow death march towards an uninhabitable planet. 
just by having that conversation, she was showing a particular bias that didn't need to be explicitly stated. And I'm okay with that, and I'm guessing the majority of her listeners were. But Terry let her own bias come through with her very first question, which was, how much worse has the climate change problem gotten since your book ends in 1989? Other questions included, do you think it's fair to say that the fossil fuel industry invented the idea of climate denial, which is both biased and leading? Her bias was further on display when she asked, do you consider President Trump a climate skeptic or a climate denier? One might say that she is not required to be neutral in her questions, since she's not reporting news in a journalistic fashion, but rather offering commentary that's going to be laced with opinion and, yes, bias. I completely get that, and I respect it. And I still would have preferred her to take a more neutral stance so that the person being interviewed could have had the opportunity to respond on their own terms rather than in reaction to her bias. It also sets a certain tone in the interview that would make it difficult for someone who disagrees to listen. If I shared that episode with a friend or a colleague who had different views on climate change as a way to perhaps influence their beliefs... I wouldn't blame them if they stopped listening early on, because it was clear that there was an agenda and not much interest in even the possibility of being wrong. And furthermore, if I was an author or an expert who had a different view and I wanted to share it, I wouldn't be inclined to try to engage her in dialogue, since she's already shown that she's friendly with one opinion and hostile towards another. Having that kind of tone and approach cuts off multiple viewpoints, which limits the conversation along with our worldview and understanding of one another. What would those questions have sounded like if the bias had been removed? For the first one, instead of how much worse, she could have said, what's been happening with climate change since your book ended in 1989? Her question asking if it's fair to say that the oil industry has played a role could have been phrased, what role did the fossil fuel industry play in the idea of climate denial? Even phrasing it that way is biased and leading because it assumes that there is a role that the fossil fuel industry plays. If the author's book stated that there was one, then that's, you know, less biased than if he had already not referenced that as a fact. But, or and, an even more open question that allows the interviewee to go where he wants and is therefore not leading or biased is, where did the idea of climate denial come from? Or what was the origin of the idea of climate denial? And by now, you can probably guess how I would reframe her question about Trump. Instead of offering an either-or question, I'd ask, how would you describe Trump's stance on climate change? While most of us aren't interviewing people on NPR, we still benefit from noticing where our biases and filters get in the way. For instance, I was in a coffee shop a few months ago, and someone walked in with a Make America Great hat on. If I had decided to ask him about it, I would have had to check my bias against that hat. A neutral question might be, I notice your hat. What motivates you to support Trump? I'm making an assumption about their support, but it's probably a safe one to make. 
And I'm not injecting my own beliefs or opinions into the space by asking the question that way. When you're asking a question, let the person answering share things through their lens, through their perspective, rather than framing your question through your own filter. As I said, it's really challenging to do, but it's worth the effort if you want someone to speak freely and share their opinions openly. And finally, number 10. Here I have saved the best, most basic, most challenging yet powerful tip for last. Ask a question and then stop. Get comfortable with silence. Let them ask for clarification if they don't understand. We often ask a question and keep talking, whether it's falling into the trap of offering possible answers before letting the other person speak, or asking the question two different ways, assuming we either weren't clear or that the other person didn't understand us. Or we just keep chattering because we're nervous or self-conscious or we're uncomfortable with the silence. This is something I've worked a lot on in my coaching, especially since most of the time coaching is done over the phone and I don't have eye contact with the other person. It takes work to ask a question and then be quiet. I heard noted journalist Bob Woodward say last year, silence sucks out the truth. I found that to be true in my coaching and for any conversations that I might have. By leaving space for the other person to answer, they have time to be more thoughtful in formulating their response. They can always ask me to repeat or rephrase my question, which they sometimes do. Think about a time when you've been talking to someone and they ask you something, but then they keep talking. You're standing there waiting for them to be quiet. And meanwhile, the original question gets lost and you've forgotten what you were going to say. The bottom line is to ask your question and then trust the silence that follows. Before I offer a quick summary and your call to action, I invite you to visit the episode webpage at HowCanIsayThis.com for additional resources on asking better questions. From there, you can also access past episodes, subscribe, or offer feedback. You'll also find information about leaving a review for the show. It only takes a few minutes, and by taking that extra step, you are helping others find the podcast and benefit from it. Thank you so much for considering that. An occasional feature of this podcast is responding to listener questions about conflict, communication, connection, and relationship building. I welcome your questions for inclusion in a future episode. You'll find the online submission form and other instructions at HowCanIsayThis.com. In closing, let's do a very quick review of what I've shared today. And from these, you decide your action step, choosing to focus on one or two points and where you want to formulate some new habits. Tip six was watch out for compound and stacking questions. Ask one question at a time. Tip seven, don't ask a question combined with possible responses. Unless the other person could use help, don't make your question a multiple choice. Tip eight, notice if your question is leading or in search of a particular answer. Are you asking a question when you really should be making a statement? Tip nine, be aware of biased questions. If you come into your question with an agenda, you risk escalating conflict, and it's less likely that you'll get an honest answer. Try to reframe your question using neutral language.
And finally, tip ten: ask a question and then stop. Get comfortable with silence. Trust the other person to ask for clarification if necessary, and leave them space to think and respond. These points, as well as the five points that I shared in the past episode, are all related to one another. And whether you take them separately or together, putting them into practice is going to transform your conversations. If you missed part one, I invite you to go back to episode thirty-one to catch up. And don't be surprised if one or more of these tips becomes its own episode somewhere down the line. This is Beth Bilo, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This. Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thank you so much for joining me today, and I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously. <music>